The rest of you take your Bibles and we're going to turn to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to stand right back up again in honor of reading God's Word this morning. I'm sorry, Revelation 21 and 22. We're going to close out this study this morning. And uh, there are a lot of verses we'll look at by way of introduction. I want you to look at verse 17. And I pray that this is a verse, this is a thought that will not escape you today. But as John begins to close out this revelation of Jesus Christ, he says, both the Spirit and the bride say, come. And anyone who hears should say, come. And the one who is thirsty should come. Whoever desires should take the living water as a gift. Some translations say, drink freely of the water of life. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray this morning that just like the songs that we sang, that our souls would be filled with all that heaven is, so much so that it shapes the way we live our lives in light of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. It titled the message, the same title of a song that we sang a moment ago. Even so, come. Again, in some translations, that's the way this This book closes with those words, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Uh, When Tina and I were newlyweds, and y'all pray for Tina, she's traveling back from North Carolina today after uh, visiting. Uh, She and Jackie Taylor went together to see our boys up there in school, so uh, as they're traveling back, keep them in prayers. But when we were living there in Wilmington, North Carolina, and uh, we had those days right after I had finished seminary. And I was in student ministry. She wasn't working anywhere at the time. But we had those days. I think Pastor Ben got tickled at me talking about uh, one of the episodes where we were literally digging in the couch to see if you could tell where our priorities were. We could see if we could find enough change to go to Dairy Queen and split a blizzard. And we we had those days where we were looking to do whatever. Well, in a coastal town like Wilmington, like many other coastal towns and, and resort cities in the mountains and things like that, there would be these travel agencies or places that would also deal with timeshares and things like that. And you, you know how it works. They would offer you a $50 gift certificate to come and hear their spill. And they sit you down in the room and they give you their best argument. And they don't understand. I don't lose arguments. And <laughs> yeah, my wife's not here to yell amen or laugh, whichever the case may be. But I would sit there and I would listen to their spiel and they would tell us why we're just low lifes if we don't get this timeshare. And I would say, hey, you said if I came and listened, I got a $50 gift card to go out to eat at a restaurant here in town. And so go, go ahead, just, just, just tell me what you got. And then they walk out of the room so that you look at all of these posters, right? And uh, so that you'd say, man, I sure would love to go there one day. Or I would love to go there. I'd love to go there. And then you're thinking, well, we live at the beach. Why do we need to go anywhere else? You know, we're, we're kind of good. We've got friends that live all across this country that have said, anytime you want to come visit, come stay with us. So the guy comes back in, and I say, look, man, we, pretty much anywhere we want to go, we know people that live there that have said, come see us sometime. So we're, we're, we're good, really. And, and after, you know, an hour of the guy just wearing himself out trying to convince us that we needed this, and we said, no, we take our little gift card, and we're fine. But in the back of our head, there's still those images, right? Man, but I sure would like to go there one day. 
I pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that it's more than just you sitting there going, man, it looks pretty nice. I sure would like to go there someday. Now, that's a big part of it. But I pray that you would see that you can experience even a taste of heaven here on earth because you start to apply the principles of this book. You know, there's a monument in Spain, uh, a tribute to Christopher Columbus. And it's the sign with these words, ne plus ultra. And the ne means no. As a matter of fact, the statement means no more beyond. Because there was a time where, where they thought, well, you come to the end of Spain, you come to the end of the world. There's nothing beyond this point. But now, this monument has a lion eating the word nay, so that the sign simply reads, more beyond. If you're at a place in life where you think that there's no more beyond this world and, and what we're experiencing now, I believe that in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, Paul would agree that we are of all men most pitiable. It's a sad thing not to believe that there is nothing beyond this. If there was nothing beyond this, I might have to figure out what this election means in, in light of all of that being that we've got to look forward to. Now, that would be a sad day for me if I had to figure that out. But there is more beyond this. I think there used to be a phrase that those of us in the church needed to hear when I was a young man, when I was a child, and that phrase was, he or she, they're so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. And we know, folks, that can be like that from time to time, but that's not the struggle most of us have. I think that the most of us, the, the, the church today struggles more than anything, not with being so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, it's that we're so worldly minded that we're no heavenly good anymore. And we're so caught up in this world, we're so caught up in everything this world has to offer and, and grabbing on, we are living like practical atheists saying, man, this life is all there is, I better get all I can. As the old saying goes, can all I get and sit on the can, right? Because that's all I've got is what this life has to offer. There's no more beyond. Well, what, how, what, do we, what have we learned in our study? Well, we've learned there's many views to the book of Revelation. Lots of interpretations of some of this hard-to-discern book in, in many passages. We learned that it certainly meant something to the first century. We, we can't overlook that. We can't say, well, it's a book about prophetic things, and so it didn't mean anything to the early church. Those first seven churches that received this book, this book was special to them. It meant something because they were being persecuted. They were suffering for their faith, and every promise in this book told them that there was more beyond. We learned also that there's apocalyptic language in this book that's undeniable, so you have to consider future events in light of the book of Revelation. We've also learned that it's relevant right now. The principles and precepts of this, all Scripture, Paul told Timothy, did he not? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And so we can't look at the book of Revelation and say, it was just for the first century church, nor can we look at it and say, well, it's just about 
end times. Now, we may be more in those end times than we realize, but we can't say it's just about end times. We have to say, yes, it's a book with apocalyptic literature that has to do with the consummation of the ages, but it meant something to the early church, and today there are principles we must live our lives by. Now, I've reiterated that point several times throughout this study. Let's remember that. Let's read the book of Revelation saying, so Lord, how do I live my life according to your word? What are the principles and the precepts that I apply? Now, we, those of us who know Jesus Christ and put our faith and trust in him, we are the unconquered church, the unconquered bride in this study. And we will remain unconquered because of our unconquered Lord. We were made for eternity. We were made to glorify God in all of life's pursuits. Now, if we're made for eternity and we're made to glorify God in all life pursuits, no wonder Jesus taught us to pray. When it came to praying, Lord, I want to live my life for the glory of God. I want to live my life to give you glory in all of life's pursuits, and I'm made for eternity. Jesus taught us how to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. So if I don't understand what heaven is all about, then I'm going to miss out on what I'm supposed to be praying for to take place in my heart and in my life, even right now. And so I want us to look at this picture of heaven that we often only read at funerals. And I want us to see that this is a beautiful picture of the new heaven and the new earth and what's going to come into place after the millennial reign of the church to introduce us to a concept of a place without time. When we speak of eternity, we start talking about uh, how long is eternity, and we've seen when we've been there 10,000 years, really the, it's kind of a moot point because time won't even exist anymore. So it becomes a motivation. Three, three closing admonitions about heaven and, and about eternity, eternity as we read these two chapters, chapter 21 and 22. And again, hang on, we're going to read a lot of Scripture this morning, but let the Scripture, let the Word of God and, and the Spirit of God speak into your heart and your life about what it means to come to a place in your life where you can pray also, even so, even so, come, Lord Jesus. The first thing I want you to see is that heaven's inhabitants will be unconquered. Heaven's inhabitants are those who have been, will be, and will continue to be unconquered. Look at verse 7 of chapter 21. As he's writing these things about the new heaven and new earth, he says, the victor will inherit these things, or the unconquered will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. And so there's a promise here to the unconquered. Your your translation may say the overcomer will inherit these things. It's the same verse, it's the same Greek word in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, where it says we are more than conquerors, or we are overcomers. Literally, in in Romans 8, 37, it's the word overwhelmingly overcome. We are super conquerors, or we will overwhelmingly overcome in Christ Jesus. If we are people who have put our faith and trust in him. So heaven is for those people who have overcome as a result of their faith in Christ. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, Eugene Peterson translates it this way in his paraphrase called The Message. He says, every God-begotten person conquers the world's ways. Now keep in mind, 1 John was written for this purpose, that you could know whether or not you're saved. 
He says in 1 John 5, 13, I've written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. So it's written for you to be, if somebody this morning is here and you're saying, Pastor, I'm not even sure if I'm born again. Study 1 John. Ask God, ask the Spirit of God and the Word of God to show you if you're born again. And he says, every God-begotten thing in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, every God-begotten person conquers the world's ways. The conquering power that brings the world to its knees is our faith. The person who wins out over the world's ways is simply the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. So let's trace the logic of these verses backwards. If we come to a place in our life where we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and we by faith accept what He did for us on the cross, and His Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, we become more than conquerors, and we become victorious, not bound by the things of this world anymore. And so the way we're living our lives today will become an indication of whether or not we're going to enjoy this eternal picture of heaven and victory over the things that he mentions in verse 8 in chapter 21. What does it mean to overcome? What have we overcome? He said, but the cowards, the unbelievers, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And we looked at that with the judgment last week. And so those who have put their faith and trust, he says, you're going to get victory over those sins in your life. And so John says, the study of 1 John would remind you that if you say you're without sin, you're a liar and you make him be a liar. But if you're living constantly defeated and continual habitual sin, it might be an indication that you're not an overcomer because you've never genuinely, authentically put your faith in Christ. If any man be in Christ, is a new creation. Old things pass away, all things become new and so heaven's inhabitants will be the unconquered those who live victoriously through their faith in christ remember we saw it in revelation 12 11 they overcame him by the blood of the lamb the word of their testimony they loved not their life unto the death now what's in store for the unconquered go back to verse one and let's kind of see what they're experiencing at this point he says i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away And the sea existed no longer. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with men. And he will live with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that a beautiful picture? He says death will exist no longer. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. There's coming a day that we will be able to spend eternity with him. We will be in his presence. And all of these, th- these word pictures there are beautiful and, and glorious, and we can't wait to experience those things. And we read about that, and we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, I am ready for that day. I can't wait to stand in your presence. The most important point of all of the glories of heaven that we're going to read about in a moment, go back to what he says the, here, though, in verse 3. God's dwelling is with men. He will be with them. God himself will be with him. What did God create us for? We said it before, but to glorify him, 
to know him, to enjoy him forever. God created us to live in relationship with him. Why did God give us free will? Because without a choice, it couldn't be a relationship. It would be something that was forced and phony. But he gives us free will so that we can choose to live in relationship with him. And so he created Adam, and in the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. They experienced intimacy. They experienced the presence of God. After the fall, God reinstituted the old covenant. Through the old covenant, his Shekinah glory and his presence would dwell with them through the tabernacle for a season. And they would see, as they would follow him, the, the, the pillar of fire by day, or, or the cloud by day, and the fire by night. And they were aware of God's presence, but it was confined to the tabernacle and to the holy place, to the, more specifically, the most holy place. And then that became visualized in the temple. And then when Jesus died on the cross, and by the way, before he died on the cross, God was with them. Very, all the Christological passages like uh, Philippians chapter 2 and Hebrews 1 and 2 and Colossians chapter 1 talks about the fact that God put on flesh, John chapter 1, he dwelt among us. And so God's dwelling was with man in a very personal way and that God put on flesh, the incarnation, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, walked with us and his glory was made manifest to us and we could see and behold God. John would write in his epistle, the one that we were able to, to touch and, and experience and see and, and then he died on a cross and when he died on the cross, in that temple, the holy place separated from the most holy place by a curtain. That curtain was ripped from top to bottom to illustrate that not only the mercy of God, but the presence of God was now available for all. And on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the church, and believers now are experiencing the presence of God because our bodies, 1 Corinthians 6 says, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So God is with us in this age through the Holy Spirit. When we get to heaven... It's going to be all of that and more. It's going to be God walking with us in the cool of the day. It's going to be God with us in a place where we're tabernacle. The tabernacle of God is with man. And now God's spirit will be with us, the very presence of Jesus Christ. When we look to the throne, we will be able to see God revealed to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Everything about the presence of God is heaven. The garden, the tabernacle, the temple, Christ himself the Holy Spirit. And it's a continual state of refreshing because of that. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. Everything's going to be in a continual state of being new. And he also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, and the end I will give to the thirsty from the spring of living water. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And then he says, but the cowards and unbelievers the vile, they won't experience that. It's the presence of God with man. That's our home. Heaven is our real home. From the point you put your faith and trust in Christ, you became known as a citizen, Ephesians says, a citizen of the saints. And so we're pilgrims, Peter says, in this world. We're passing through. A story is told of a, a late 19th century pastor who was in Europe, and he went to visit a Messianic rabbi in Poland. And when he went to his home, there was no furniture. 
there, there, there were books, and, and there was a desk where he did his studying, but there was no furniture. The, the place wasn't furnished. And so this pastor said, where's your furniture? And this rabbi looked at him and said, where's your furniture? And he said, I don't live here. This isn't my home. I'm just a tourist. I'm just traveling through. And this rabbi looked at him and said, so am I. So am I. And he made a profound point that in this life, we're traveling through because we've got something better that's waiting on us. And so we don't want to get bogged down and weighted down by the things of this world. We want to be ready for what God has for us, and we want to live in light of that eternity. Live in light of, of what God has for us. Are you bound by material things? Are you bound by the things of this world or the pursuit of the things of this world or everything that this world has to offer the world and all of its lusts and pleasures that are for a season, but in the end it leads to death? Or have we learned that in Psalm 16, 11, it says that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore, and when we live by heavenly principles on earth, we begin to enjoy Jesus. We begin to enjoy the things that are priorities in the kingdom of God, and when this life ends, we step right into eternity. Some of you remember when I was young, I was in, in the youth group here, and I, I had a, a, a car. It was a, a black Mustang. I think Toby ended up blowing the motor in it. He got it after me. Um, it was one on it. Uh, I don't think Tim Stamps is here, but it, he owned it before I did. Actually, somebody else had it in between us. And uh, it, was, it looked really fast on the outside, man. But it was, it was a four-cylinder, but nobody knew that. And uh, it, it, was, uh, it, was, it was kind of struggling, you know. And I was coming up. Some of you know where King Avenue is. My mom worked at Athens Orthopedic Clinic. It used to be on the opposite end of King Avenue than it is now. And there's kind of a hill and a five-way crossing in the middle. And uh, I was coming up that hill to that crossing. And the light was green, but I had slowed up a little bit. And the, the car went dead. And I used to be able to just kind of pop that clutch and get it rolling again, and this time it, it wouldn't start. And, and so I, before I came to a stop, I knew that it was downhill on the other side. I jumped out of the car while it was moving, one hand on the steering wheel, one hand on my door, and I'm running through this five-way cross trying to get this car to keep going. I, I get, get over the hill, jump in, shut the door. Now I'm going downhill. We can pop the clutch, get this thing started right. Wouldn't start. Kept trying, kept trying. It wouldn't start, and I had to pull off into a little street on the side and walk to mom, right? Cars broke down. It's sitting up the street here. Can't get it to go. Now, as, as good as I thought that car looked on the outside, it came to a day where it wouldn't run. I stepped out of it. I continued to walk. Was I any less alive when I stepped out of that car and began to walk. As a matter of fact, once my circulation got going, I wasn't just sitting back. My heart started beating. Somebody might argue that I was more alive after I got out of the car than I was when I was in the car. And that's the way we need to look at this body and what we are bound by in this life. 
when we step into eternity, we look at it as death, but we are more alive at this moment because we are in the presence of God. When we step out of this cardiac Cadillac, this, this flesh that we live in, this earthly tent, we will be more alive in his presence than ever before. And heaven is a place that God has prepared for us to, to get to where he is and enjoy his presence forever. And I want you to see that heaven's immensity. Now, these verses, a lot of verses here from verse 9 on speak of the immensity of heaven. It will be unimaginable. That's why John has to, again and again in the book of Revelation, keep saying, as it were, or like. John was saying, man, to be honest with you, it was indescribable. Indescribable. We can't imagine what it's going to be like. And so look at the majesty that heaven reflects in verses 9 through 11. It says, one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls with the seven last plagues, came and he spoke with me and he said, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, notice that language of the bride. It's used first under the New Covenant, in the New Testament to describe the church as the bride of Christ. Those who are born again, we're all part of the bride of Christ. And then it becomes used to describe the church and Israel all together, all saints of all times, those people of faith from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, as we come together and enter into heaven, we're the bride. And then ultimately, we be heaven becomes so much a part of who we are that heaven itself is called the bride. It says, He then carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Arrayed with God's glory, her radiance was like a very precious stone, like a jasper stone, bright as crystal. We see the, the majesty of God being reflected. And, and then we see that this also commemorates his covenant people, those through the new covenant, through faith in Christ, those under the old covenant looking forward to the coming of Messiah. We see his covenant people commemorated in this place called heaven. The city had a massive high wall, verse 12 says, with 12 gates. Why 12? It says the 12 angels were at the gates and on the Name, on the gates, names were inscribed, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. God started a people of faith with Abraham, who had Isaac, and then Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. You have the 12 tribes of Israel, and they would all look forward to that. The Bible says that Abraham looked for a better city. He looked forward to this day, and so it will commemorate the one Abraham who was how was he saved? He was saved by grace through faith like us. Abraham believed God, faith, and it was accredited to him as righteousness, and that faith is commemorated for all eternity. And there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the city also had 12 foundations, and on them, here are the new, the new covenant saints being commemorated. It says, were the 12 names of the Lamb's 12 apostles. And so Peter and James and John and the other apostles will have a place where their names are engraved to remind us that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world for the church that was launched by these apostles. And the one who spoke with me, verse 15, goes on to say, and you can just see this reflect God's glory. If you'll read with me these verses, the one who, who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out in a square, its length and its width, 
are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, height are equal. This is basically a 1,500-mile cubed (laughs) city. He measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper. The city was pure gold. It was like crystal glass. He says, it's like, when he says, as it were, alike, he's saying, I couldn't, it's the best way I know how to describe it. It was beautiful. It was colorful. Verse 19, the foundation city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. And so he, it's as if he names all of these stones to say these brilliant, beautiful colors. Heaven is a place where we will always be being continually made new and always in wonder of the beauty that is around us and all that it's reflecting. Verse 21, the 12 gates, he says, are 12 pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The broad street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. This is a heavenly material better than any precious stone that we could imagine, but he's saying this is the best way I can describe it. I did not see a sanctuary in it. Verse 22, remember what we're there for? His presence. Because the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb, are its sanctuary. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it. Why? Because God's glory illuminates it. And its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus Christ is the light of heaven. It reflects all of his glory. Jesus said, now listen, this is after the Feast of the Tabernacles. And in Jerusalem, when they had the Feast of the Tabernacles, they would light these four torches. It was kind of what Canada tried to do at the Winter Olympics a few years ago. But there were these four torches that would stay lit throughout the entire Feast of Tabernacles. And at the end of the feast... After that, what they called the great day of the feast. And on that great day of the feast, Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, I'll give you living water, which kind of parallels what's happening here, right? But after that great day of the feast, when the party's over and everybody's going home and the the streets of the city are just covered with garbage, kind of like Athfest, right? It it was just, the the city was covered with, with garbage and debris. Feast of Tabernacles, though, would have looked more like a NASCAR race with all the campers everywhere, but... Everybody's pulled up their tents, and they're leaving town, and, and trash is everywhere, and, and the party's over, and they've got to go back to work, right? No fun. They've got to go back to work, and those torches would be extinguished, and now it's dark in the city except for the small torches in various places. And Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me will never walk in darkness. What was Jesus saying? He says, here's what, it's, here's what it means to walk with me. I'm the light of the world, and when you go to heaven, the party never stops. And, and I know that people will try to say, man, I'm okay with going to hell because all of my friends are going to be there. We saw enough about judgment to know that they're not going to be aware of their friends. They're going to be in a lonely place, and they're not going to be enjoying it. But Jesus said, if you love me, if you walk with me, if you walk in my light, the party never stops. There will never be a day that the lights are extinguished. They will never go out because I am the light of the world. People are looking for light, and they're looking for hope, and they're rejecting Christ every day. It's reflecting his glory, reflecting his light. Verse 22, sorry, verse 24, the the nations will walk in its light. 
and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. Now, aren't you glad in that new heavenly body you're not going to get tired? <laughs> you say, There's no night. So, some of us, I, I, I know, and Tina, if she were here, she would say a big amen to this. The idea of heaven is just a really, really good nap. We won't need it anymore. We won't need it in that day, and it will never be night there. Studies have shown places around the world that have the least sunlight struggle with the most depression. It's either because of where they are and the amount of light they get per day or because of the clouds and the rain and, and, and the, the atmosphere, the environment that they live in. The more we go without light, the more we feel down in our spirits at times. Maybe that's why we pull out so many lights at Christmas time and throughout the winter. It says, they will bring glory and honor of the nations into it. Verse 27, nothing profane will ever enter into it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those written in the Lamb's Book of Life that we read about just last week. What a day that will be, the, the hymn writer said. When my Jesus I shall see and I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, what a day, what a glorious day. That will be. We see the beauty of that day. We see his immensity, again, unimaginable in, in chapter 22 the, as the source of life. It says, he showed me a river of living water, verse 1, sparkling like crystal flowing from the throne and from the Lamb. A picture of the Feast of Tabernacles, again, the, the presence of God with man. The river of life, the living water is flowing down the middle of the broad street of the city and on both sides of the river was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing fruit every month. A picture of perfect satisfaction. You will always be satisfied. You will never go without. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. We've got this picture of heaven being, I'm playing a harp and I'm floating around on a cloud. Whoopee! <laughs> and, and that's just not an appealing vision for most of us. I know some of you, well, I'd be kind of, I'm a musician, I think it'd be pretty awesome, but that's just not appealing for most of us. And we don't realize that heaven is more than that. We're serving God, we're doing what we were created to do. It's everything that Adam and Eve had before the curse and before the fall and more because there's a new heaven and there's a new earth. There's a new Jerusalem, this city, but heaven includes this eternity, includes so much more than that. It, it, it means there's a new earth as well. And so the, you, you guys who love the outdoors and the lakes and the streams, you think of all of that uncorrupted, undefiled by man, now in perfection and us living in harmony with that. That's what the new heaven and the new earth is all about. It will never grow boring. We will always continually be being made New. It says they will see his face. Whose face? They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Jesus. Night will no longer exist and the people will not need lamplight or sunlight because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever 
and ever. We're serving and we're reigning and we're ruling and we're walking arm in arm with brothers and sisters in Christ from every nation and tribe and tongue, every generation, all those who have put their faith in the Lamb. We're just passing through this life. Can you imagine traveling to a place you've never been before? Some of you have done this because you've got a family member, maybe a child, maybe a parent, uh, a brother, sister, somebody has moved to a particular area, and so you're traveling to where you've never been before, and you're like, is it going to be beautiful? Is it going to be a great place? What is there to do there? If we're asking those questions, and we're more concerned with that, then we may not have anybody we really love living there, right? Because if there's somebody that we truly love living there, we're more excited about who's going to be there than what we're going to do once we get there. I mean, I'm just going to be with them. I just can't wait to get there and hang out with them. And so when we love Jesus Christ and he's first and foremost in our lives, we get excited about this because, wow, when I get there, I'm going to be with Jesus. And that's more important than anything else. That's why before the new heaven and new earth, come into place before the resurrected body is given to us. We're content in our spirit. We're content in our soul, Paul said, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord from the very moment that we take our last breath in this life. It's being with Jesus that makes all the difference. Do you know everything about heaven? Not the half has been told. We don't understand everything that's going to be there. Richard Baxter, a great Puritan pastor, wrote this. He says, my knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But it's enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. What is the point of this passage for the early church? The same Jesus that you're going to be with in eternity is right here with you now through his spirit. What's the point for us today? Jesus is our satisfaction. If any man be in Christ, not only is he a new creation, not only is he making all things new. Jesus said the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but he said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, that you might have a taste of heaven on earth. How in the world can you call living in the 21st century heaven on earth because Jesus is with me and I get a taste of him? I can walk with him and walk in fellowship with him and walk in harmony with him because of the cross and the resurrection, the empty tomb. And finally, I want you to see this, and this is not only a message for us to hear, but this is a message for us to extend, and that's heaven's invitation. Heaven's invitation is to all of those who are unsatisfied. Heaven's invitation is to the, all of those who are hungry and who are thirsty. Heaven's invitation we see in these last verses, starting with verse 6. It says, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God, of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servant what must quickly take place. And John was the recipient of that. And in the words of Christ recorded here, look, I am coming quickly. Blessed is the one who keeps the prophetic words of this book. I, John, John now talking again said, I'm the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the one who had shown them to me, but he said, remember John had tried this before and he heard the same rebuke, don't do that, I'm a fellow slave with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book, worship God. That should be our motivation, that's our invitation, come to the throne, worship God, know him and make him known. He also said to me, don't seal the prophetic words of this book. 
because the time is near. <laughs> Don't close that scroll up, John. The time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. You might would read between the lines if that's what they are choosing to do. Let the filthy go on being made filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy go on being made holy. Look, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to repay each person according to what he has done. Referring back to the judgments we read about. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, speaking of the, in the blood of the Lamb there, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city gates. Why? Because they're pure in heart. Compare that with the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. Not, not only do we read, blessed are those who are hungry and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's going to be made more real, more alive. Yes, it's unimaginable. But this invitation goes out to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you look down at verse 17, you see the invitation was extended to us, but it must go out from us. This is where we started. Both the Spirit and the bride say, come. The Holy Spirit of God, who was sent into the world to convict the world of righteousness and of judgment, is sending an invitation through the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, to say, come. But also it should go out, he says, let the bride say, come. So the church who has come to Christ must go out into this world and invite others to come to faith in Christ. How cruel would it be if we didn't extend that invitation? Would you pray with me?